Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. The Buzz this week, Arizona sues opioid manufacturer Purdue Pharma. What Purdue agreed to is that they would not have any more deceptive advertising related to this product, OxyContin, and they failed to do so. In recent months, Arizona's public and private sectors have taken the opioid industry to court over alleged misrepresentation of the drug's addictiveness. We'll take a look at where these lawsuits are headed and what potential they have to change national drug policy. If you can focus not just on one patient or one physician or one smoker, but look at what's happening on a societal level, you can start to fight back against those arguments. First, we speak with Matt Dumay, a deputy state attorney general. I asked him to explain the lawsuit Arizona recently filed against Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin. In 2007, the attorney general's office entered into a consent judgment with Purdue Pharma. And under that judgment, Purdue Pharma was found to have done a number of bad practices with regard to its prescription opioids, most notably OxyContin. What Purdue agreed to, and the court entered an order saying that they must do it, is that they would not have any more deceptive advertising related to this product. And what they also agreed to was that they would provide balanced statements whenever they were discussing OxyContin or OxyCodone products in general. And they failed to do so. One of the things that they did over time that made it kind of hard to detect is they funded other groups that then would in turn promote opioids, and it wasn't always clear that Purdue was actually one of the ones who was sponsoring the message. Purdue had a number of really dangerous statements that they made to the public, and that's what Attorney General Brnovich alleges in this action that we've brought now. One of the ones that I think is the most notable is that Purdue actually claimed at one point that opioids were safer than non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, and those drugs are ibuprofen and aspirin. And it said, here's a statistic of how many people die from these types of drugs every year, and then there's no statistics about how many people die from opioids every year, or how many people died from OxyContin. There's just a clear lack of balance in something like that, and that's a violation of the court's order. But more importantly, it's dangerous to be telling people only one side of the story, and that's something that Attorney General Brnovich takes really seriously. Our office has been heavily involved in various actions with regard to opioids. Uh, one notable one is we sued uh, Insys Therapeutics, which is an opioid manufacturer here in Chandler. We were the first state to go to litigation against them. That's over a, a national scheme that involved almost a billion dollars in opioid sales. And then we're also involved in the opioid multi-state efforts, which are ongoing, but we felt at this point, as other states have done as well, that we needed to individually sue Purdue Pharma over these actions and these statements that they've taken. How many incidents are we talking about? I know the state is suing for actual financial repercussions. How much is the state suing for? Under the statute, Attorney General Brnovich is allowed to seek up to $25,000 per violation of a previous judgment that was entered under the Consumer Fraud Act. And in different cases, we've sought different amounts of civil penalties depending on the severity of the conduct. In this case, Attorney General Brnovich believes that the conduct is so severe and so egregious and so dangerous that we're going to be seeking the full amount of $25,000 for each and every violation of the consent judgment that Purdue's found to have participated in. 
is that hundreds, thousands of incidents more than that? It could be a very large number. Part of it depends on how the court decides to count violations. That's something that's often in dispute as part of litigation is what constitutes a violation. But we believe that when the statute says violation, that it's talking about each and every instance in which you've promulgated information to a consumer that violates the Consumer Fraud Act. And the Attorney General Brnovich intends to seek the maximum penalty that's available to us under the statute. From a legal standpoint, the suit's been filed. Are we looking for a jury trial? Is this something that just happens with a judge? Is this happens with you as one of the the lead litigators and their attorneys? You sit down in a room, work something out, and take it to a judge? How does this proceed from here? This case is sort of an unusual posture in that there's already been a judgment that's been entered as part of this 2007 proceeding. This isn't a case where we're starting from scratch and we filed a complaint and they have a chance to try to dismiss it. This is a case where what we filed is something called an application for an order to show cause where we're saying you violated this previous judgment and the question is just going to be did Purdue violate it or did they not violate it? And so the scope of the issues is narrowed quite a bit from a usual proceeding and because of that it's possible that it may move faster than a typical lawsuit. How does it play into the other lawsuits that Arizona is party to, or even, for example, the Tucson Medical Center lawsuit, or the lawsuit that Cochise County joined recently? Well, under the Consumer Fraud Act, the remedies that the Attorney General is allowed to seek are all cumulative, which means that they're in addition to any other remedies that are provided for by any other statute or any other cause of action. So even if there's recovery in these other cases, that won't stop Attorney General Brnovich from recovering penalties in this particular case for Purdue's conduct in violating this particular judgment. Suits against the opioid industry are are coming fast and furious at this point uh, from states, municipalities, and on and on. Is this going to be like tobacco in the 90s where eventually there's a universal settlement, if you will, that makes all of these go away, do you think? That's certainly a possibility, and that's something that I think it's been well publicized that the multi-state and the multi-district litigation, that's something that the opioid manufacturers are interested in as well as possibly distributors as well. And that's something that I think we are still interested in pursuing, but we felt that the settlement negotiations weren't proceeding fast enough and that something needed to be done in order to make sure that we've preserved our particular claims and that we have this remedy and that we make sure Purdue is held accountable for its actions. It seems like this suit is a little different. Uh, As you mentioned, it's not a case of where Purdue has to prove their information is right or wrong. They either violated or they didn't. We don't go back to, well, doctors have a certain level of responsibility for prescribing. That's not the question here. It's did they or did they not violate something they agreed to? Exactly. What Attorney General Brnovich is alleging is that Purdue made a deal and they agreed that the court could hold them accountable if they broke that deal. And Purdue broke the deal and now they need to be held accountable. This comes out of a 2007 agreement. What led to that agreement that now brings us to today? That agreement was preceded by another investigation that looked into how Purdue marketed OxyContin in particular and its drugs in general and found that Purdue engaged in false and misleading advertising in order to get people to buy its products. 
as part of that settlement, which also other states were involved in as well, Purdue agreed to stop doing so and also to pay a monetary penalty to the states, but it doesn't appear to have stopped them. At least that's what the attorney general has alleged in this complaint. Sure, somebody's going to look at this and say that was 2007. This is 2018. Why wait 11 years to file this part of it? Attorney General Brnovich, since he took office in 2015, one of his biggest issues has been health care and health care fraud. And I think one instance of that that we can see is the Theranos case. That was another case that we investigated and we came to a settlement where we got restitution for every single Arizonan who paid out of pocket for a blood test. And this investigation is no different. It's been ongoing for quite some time. We've gotten documents from Purdue. We've done our due diligence. We actually contacted Purdue in June, laying out the violations that we'd found, uh, because under the 2007 judgment, we had to give them at least 30 business days notice. Even though sometimes people can't see what's going on behind the scenes, and our investigations are confidential, so we're prohibited from telling anybody what's going on behind the scenes. Suffice it to say that the AG is very concerned about this issue, and I think our office has taken a number of actions. Another one that I haven't even mentioned yet is eight people were recently indicted that were operating a prescription opioid ring in northern Arizona, particularly in the Bullhead City area. AG Brnovich obtained felony indictments for those people. This, this is something that on the civil side and on the criminal side, AG Brnovich is taking aggressive action to do what we can to try to abate this crisis and also help make sure the people are accountable who have played a part in causing this crisis. We're talking with Matt Dumay, an attorney with the Attorney General's office. Assuming this suit goes the way that the Attorney General would like it to go, it could be anywhere from $25,000 to millions and millions of dollars. What happens to that money? The Purdue Pharma writes a check to the state of Arizona. Where does that money go? Money that comes in in the form of civil penalties statutorily goes into a revolving fund that can be used to pay for a number of different things, including education efforts, enforcement efforts. But we're not just seeking penalties as part of this lawsuit. Because we're bringing it under the Consumer Fraud Act, we're also looking for restitution and disgorgement. And so to the extent that we're able to show that individuals were harmed in particular or that Purdue profited off of this behavior, then we'll be able to recover that money as well. So restitution, you're talking individuals in Arizona could get a check of an unknown amount at this point if they're uh, prescription holders for OxyContin. It's possible. The restitution is a priority of Attorney General Brnovich, and we see that, for example, in the Theranos settlement where the lion's share of the money was for restitution rather than civil penalties. But in order to do that, we'd need to be able to prove that uh, the money that Purdue got was acquired through consumer fraud and be able to identify who we would need to return it to. And that might be difficult to prove in this case, but we're going to do everything we can to prove it. You gave Purdue notice in June that this action was going to be taken. I know it's an ongoing investigation, but can you tell us anything about what Purdue said at the time or no? Well, Attorney General Brnovich included Purdue's response, I believe, in the in the filing along with evidence of the other misstatements that Purdue had made or sponsored over the years. And Purdue said, look, we've taken steps to try to help with the opioid crisis. We're doing other things. But none of that changes the fact that these statements were made and that they were 
mis- that we allege that they're false and misleading. And so that's when we filed the application. We made clear that this was about their past statements and their past conduct. Was that 2007 settlement only with Purdue, or are there other companies that we may be hearing of shortly that you're also potentially pursuing this against? Well, the 2007 settlement was only with Purdue, but that certainly doesn't limit us from investigating and prosecuting other opioid manufacturers, including INSYS, who we've already filed a lawsuit against, or other people who are involved in the opioid crisis, including distributors or pharmacies. There's certainly no limitation on our ability to bring consumer fraud actions against companies that we believe engaged in false or deceptive advertising. With regard to this case or the opioid crisis as a whole, is there anything we've missed? Well, Attorney General Brnovich has been actively looking at this. We have a a whole team here at the office that's looking into this issue, and more and more information is coming out all the time. It's obviously an evolving issue. There's so much to process and to dig into, but the Attorney General is determined to fight for Arizonans on this issue and do everything he can in order to assist. That was Matt Dumay, a lawyer in the State Attorney General's office. We reached out to Purdue Pharma for an interview, and the company declined to respond. While the state lawsuit seeks money for restitution and education, the federal government just announced more than $26 million in opioid-related funding for Arizona. According to the Federal Department of Health and Human Services, the funds will be used to increase access to medication-assisted treatment and mental health services. You're listening to The Buzz from Arizona Public Media. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, we're continuing our look at opioids in southern Arizona by diving into the lawsuit Arizona has filed against top opioid manufacturer Purdue Pharma. Last week's announcement that the state is suing the company is not the only pending litigation against the opioid industry in the state. Cochise County decided to join a lawsuit that already has multiple other municipal governments as plaintiffs. Cochise County Attorney Brian McIntyre spoke with AZPM after joining the suit. He blames opioid addiction for a rise in crime. We've had robberies, kidnappings, aggravated assaults against pharmacists driven by people attempting to obtain these narcotics after getting cut off for whatever reason. Cochise County joined lawsuits with the City of Phoenix and the Navajo Nation. Two weeks ago, the Tucson City Council voted unanimously to join a suit, though the city has not officially entered a case yet. City Attorney Mike Rankin told the mayor and council that data collected as part of a recent emergency declaration by Governor Doug Ducey provides the backbone of a lawsuit. Using that information, it's it's quite clear that we, like other areas, have been damaged by the practices of the manufacturers and distributors with respect to opioids, and that we have a basis to initiate our claims. Suits against opioid manufacturers and distributors are not limited to the public sector. Last month, Tucson Medical Center announced it, too, would take the industry to court. TMC attorney Tim Harden spoke with us for an earlier episode of The Buzz. He says opioid addicts can be difficult patients. They tend to be non-compliant with their health care providers. They tend to have behavioral issues. They need more care, which is harder to deliver. Some of them, if they're inpatients, we assign 24-hour-a-day sitters who stay in their room with them. 
To look at the bigger picture of opioid lawsuits and how legal claims like this can drive state and national policy, we spoke with Christopher Robertson. He's a law professor and associate dean at the University of Arizona James E. Rogers College of Law. His work focuses on the intersection of health, science, and law. We began by talking about what he makes of this latest lawsuit. We have this distributed system of regulation in the United States. We, we focus a lot on the Food and Drug Administration, a federal agency, to make sure our drugs are safe and effective. But the state attorneys general also have a role in, in making sure that marketing done within the state is not misleading or deceptive or harmful. So here the state AGs, really um, uh, many of them nationwide, um, our own AG is just one of them, uh, have stepped up to do something about this opioid epidemic. And so they look in their toolbox, and the tool they have is, uh, one of them is the consumer fraud and consumer safety laws. And so it, it turns out this is one way to put the drug companies on a leash and, and make sure that they're not acting dangerously in the state. Is this lawsuit more about health, or is it about fraud in reality? Well, I think they're really completely intertwined because we depend on physicians to make those prescribing decisions, which cause, you know, reimbursements and payments to be made. But but they're doing it based on the scientific evidence that is available to them and, frankly, the marketing that they receive. So if they're sort of receiving bad information from the drug companies, if they're receiving distorted science, then they're going to write more scripts. And uh, those prescriptions can very well make us sicker instead of making us healthier. So it's all an intertwined economic system, a scientific system, and, and a health system. In the 90s, when we saw the tobacco litigation Tobacco was stripped of a lot of its legal legs to stand on. In this case, I'm sure the opioid industry for all of these suits is going to come back with, well, doctors are educated. They wrote the prescriptions. We didn't force anybody. Is that the type of thing that stands up in court? Well, you know, that's also quite analogous to what happened in the tobacco litigation. Every single patient, every single person that claimed to be injured the tobacco companies would say, well, you know, they smoked those cigarettes. They bought those, uh, and it's really those individuals' fault. And so that's one of the advantages of what we call aggregate litigation. If you can focus not just on one patient or one physician or one smoker, but look at what's happening on a societal level, you can start to sort of fight back against those arguments. And that's what's happening here. And this is just one of the forms of aggregation that we're seeing against these drug companies. You know, there's another big set of lawsuits based in Cleveland where the cities are suing. Uh, but, but once you get the major um, players involved, like the attorneys generals or get aggregated cases like a mass tort or a class action, you can start to see that, sure, there are individual behaviors that issue here. There are individual people that swallowed every one of those pills, individual physicians that wrote every script. But there's a larger phenomenon of deceptive marketing, of misleading claims, of poor quality science that's really shaping these outcomes. And the drug industry is partly responsible for that. Will this lead to changes, do you think, in the way drugs are marketed or distributed? Uh, we saw some attempted changes with tobacco, but plenty of people still are smoking. Do you think this will lead to changes for opioids? Well, smoking rates in the U.S. have dropped substantially, so I think we can mark that as a win. I mean, the battle is, is never over, but um, there, there was an important change there. Unfortunately, a lot of those tactics, talking about tobacco, have moved across the world, and so other countries are decades behind the U.S., and some of these same marketing battles are happening. 
But to answer your question more directly about drug marketing in the U.S., one of the issues here is around off-label marketing, where the companies are FDA-approved to promote their drug, for example, for acute pain, but then they also promote it for chronic pain, where the science may not be as effective. Those battles have been continuing for decades, and so this is sort of another round where the industry moves across the line and, and they're pushed back across it. So I don't see this as a transformational moment for drug marketing. It's not going to change radically, but the opioids crisis has shown sort of the worst-case scenario if we are lackadaisical about regulation and liability. Really, really bad things can happen. Tens of thousands of people can be dead. And so I think it is a lesson for why we really do have to toe the line to make sure that the scientific and regulatory processes are working effectively. We've heard a lot about the opioid crisis, especially the last two years or so. At the government level, our legislature and governor passed a number of things to deal with individuals. But we haven't seen government entities as a whole really going after the distribution end of it and the prescription end of it. Is that where the courts come in on all of this, where maybe elected officials aren't willing to quite take that next step, but the courts do? Well, that is an advantage of the legal system. With a jury randomly selected from a population, a judge sitting on a bench, if it's a federal judge with a lifetime appointment, it gives them um, some independence to look at the facts afresh. Whereas any particular legislator, you know, we have this really messed up campaign finance system in the United States. Uh, we have this, you know, buck passing where there's, you know, in Congress we have 535 different legislators. It's hard to figure out who, who to blame. Whereas the courts can really focus attention and make a decision. And so in that way, I think it is an effective mechanism to regulate when the legislatures or even the administrative agencies fail. More and more we are seeing health and law intersect. It's your big area of study. Is, is that just an outsider's view um, because that's what we hear about? Or more and more, is the legal system getting involved in dealing with health care? It really has been um, for a century or more. I mean, physicians, they commit a crime if they're not licensed. If they act unreasonably in giving care, they're subject to liability. Every drug that's sold in interstate commerce has to be approved by the FDA. Most consumption is, is through insurance, which often requires, you know, governmental insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, some of the largest payers. So, you know, the legal role is really essential to our health care system. It, it really defines what drugs and what professionals go on the market and who pays for them and how. We're talking with Christopher Robertson. He's a professor at the University of Arizona, James E. Rogers College of Law. You mentioned that health and the law have been intersecting for a century or so. What are some other examples of lawsuits like this opioid? Uh, well, it's not even opioid one, these many opioid lawsuits where health and law have come together for a big change. So we've talked about the tobacco, uh, and that's an important one. And we've also talked about a range of other off-label marketing promotions where you have drug companies taking a drug and really pushing it beyond where the science supports. And so that raises a, a number of interesting legal issues. Um, one is the First Amendment. Uh, drug companies have recently claimed that they have a right under the Constitution to promote their drugs in any way that turns out to be non-misleading or truthful, even if the FDA hasn't uh, had a chance to review the science, or even if the science hasn't actually been done. 
So that's been an exciting cutting edge area and it sort of impinges that it might actually come up in this uh, opioids litigation as well. So there's a range of, of other areas where law and science and medicine intersect. Is Arizona leading on this? We have the suit now filed by the Attorney General. We have the suit filed by Tucson Medical Center. Cochise County is getting in. The city of Tucson is getting in. Pima County is talking about getting in. Are we leading or are we just like every other state at this point? From what I'm seeing, this lawsuit, for example, that was announced last week comes in the wake of a 2008 consent decree. And so this has been a rolling process, and at different times, different attorneys general uh, in different cities have sort of stepped in. Uh, but what we're really seeing now is a, a national groundswell of action. Arizona's playing an important role in it. Do these cases ever get to court, or will the opioid industry, as the tobacco industry did and others have done, asbestos, Volkswagen, have done in the past, just settle it before we end up in court? There are lots of smaller cases that have already gone to court where individual injured people who got addicted and had their lives ruined went to court. They sued their doctors. They sued the drug companies. But it's really hard to, to win those cases, frankly, because you've got to prove causation and you, in a way that shows that my loss was, was due to this company. As they get aggregated together, as they get put together with thousands of individual patients, hundreds of cities, dozens of states, they go to court, but rarely in terms of a traditional jury trial. Uh, at that point, for the drug companies uh, or any defendant, it becomes almost too big to lose. And so usually ends up in some sort of settlement, some sort of resolved agreement. The good thing about that is it, it's efficient and it's effective. The bad thing is we might never get the full story. Um, the companies will often try to you know, resolve the case without admitting guilt, for example, or without revealing their, their dirtiest documents that showed that they knew the problem was occurring. But usually once a case goes together, that it's some sort of negotiated settlement. And we see not only potentially billions of dollars uh, in those settlements, but then changes in the law or changes in agreements on how things are done also. That's right. And they might also be the, the sort of straw that breaks the camel's back and eventually causes you know changes in Congress or in the FDA uh, as attention gets focused on these cases and, and, the, and, and more documents do come out and you start thinking about the fundamental problems. That was Christopher Robertson, a law professor and associate dean at the University of Arizona James E. Rogers College of Law. And that's the buzz for this week. This is the third and final part in a series on the opioid epidemic in southern Arizona. If you missed the last two episodes, you can find them on our website, radio.azpm.org slash thebuzz or in your favorite podcast app, just search for The Buzz Arizona. Tune in next week as we discuss the final season of football at Pima Community College. We're going to have a great team this year, but this is your one opportunity to do something special. We'll ask what caused the school to defund the program and hear what it's like to coach the final Aztec football team. Zach Ziegler and Ariana Brocious produced and edited the show. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Andrea Kelly is the news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.